Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Good afternoon, gentle listeners, and welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And today on the show, we are joined by Dr. Ashley Mateus, who is a PhD at the University of North Carolina and a fellow at the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. Thanks so much for joining us, Ashley. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. I guess just to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about how you started researching the, the far right? So it actually started around the time I was doing my master's work, which I focused on gendered hate online and looking at what's now termed male supremacist extremism. And that was back in 2013, 2014, when I started looking at that. So we might think there of the manosphere cultures, men's rights activists, men going their own way, uh, the group we now call incels and pickup artists. And after that work, I thought, you know, I'll pivot away from kind of this really difficult subject matter to study things around motherhood and kind of culture for my PhD. And about a year into that, I came across a video of white nationalist women basically saying that they use motherhood as a framework for recruiting, which was aligning with the arguments I was getting ready to make for my dissertation. So that kind of drew me full circle back into looking at extremism online and gender and how gender is used to kind of bring people into racial hate. And so my prior work had been on masculinities, and then I started working on femininities at that point. And at that time, which would have been 2016, 2017, the alt-right and kind of the communities I had been working on before in the manosphere were overlapping. They kind of circle each other in some ways. So they share narratives of like anti-feminism and narratives about masculine precarity. So there was a lot of overlap there. So it just kind of came back and, and I started building from there because it was a point in kind of politics and culture that I decided I couldn't not look at it. There's overlap, Ashley. Could you go into a little more detail about what you think is the the overlap between what are sometimes thought of as being somewhat separate domains of political thought or, or practice? So they are separate in certain kinds of ways, but because they're digital cultures predominantly, they're governed in some ways by how digital sociality, what I would call digital sociality, works. And that's an argument I've made several times for CAR. So we know that influencers have moved between these communities. Stefan Molyneux, for example, started as a men's rights activist and kind of moved more into the alt-right. And we know they interact with each other. We can see it online. So because they share certain types of narratives, right, they believe that feminism is a tool of global cabal. Their, Their founding conspiracy theories are different. But they believe feminism is an instrument of the destruction of society and particularly that destruction through 
the kind of destruction of men specifically, right? And in the case of white supremacy or white nationalist kind of oriented flavors, right? That's about the destruction of whiteness as well. And so in the Manosphere, you have the idea of the global gynocentric governance, which is how policy law and, and, and government favors women and men are seen as disposable in that ideology. And then in the white supremacist side, you have the typically what they would refer to as the Zionist occupied government or the Jewish cabal, right, which uses feminism. In both cases, those conspiratorial governmental entities utilize feminism as a way to break apart the traditional family, to get women to no longer enact feminine roles, which endangers men, which endangers the future, right? So it's, it's a way of creating in-groups and out-groups that works in a structurally similar way. And because they share kind of similar narratives about stuff like that, it, you can transfer digital content and propaganda and circulate it through those communities, right? Because they have a, a similar thread. It doesn't mean they all agree with it. And certainly they have very distinct differences, even within their own groups, right? Like identitarians are different from neo-Nazis, are different from kind of other groups, just like MRAs and MGTOWs and pickup artists and incels are, are different from each other within that context. They have certain types of affinities and certain types of logics around gender specifically that make their kind of um, online spaces interconnected in certain ways. You've written a bit about how uh, white supremacist communities have incorporated propaganda or you know, meme concepts from gendered hate communities online. I'm thinking specifically about you know, framing various math shooters as chads. Could you speak a little bit about what you observed in that area and what you concluded from it? Right. So in, in that case, I was looking at what we would call the visual rhetoric or the kind of persuasive force of the visual argument. So I had noticed, I had seen, and actually it was a news article had had this image, and I went and then looked up more images like it. But there's a, a meme that floats around kind of the incel community initially, drawn in a very specific way that poses incels in relation to chads. And chads are dominant men who have access to all the hottest women, make the most money, right? They're everything that an incel is not. And it initially started as kind of an ironic framing used by incels to point out the, the flaws of chads and the, and the good features of incels. And then we see this set of memes come out after the Christchurch attack specifically, and several attacks later, that pose the chad figure as the white supremacist mass attacker. But in this case, that's the positive image. And then it poses the incel as failed, right? And specifically, they used incel attackers, right? Uh, so the Isla Vista shooter, things like that, to pose that as like the wrong reason, the wrong way to go about committing mass violence. And the kind of visual argument that's made through this framing is that the right way back to proper masculinity, the way to become a real man is to commit violence on behalf of the white race, right? I don't Looking at the visual rhetoric does not necessarily mean that that's a successful argument for incels, but it's a concerning type of argument to make. I've also noticed that right-wing extremists or white supremacist extremist groups have have tried to kind of make visual arguments toward other groups in those communities. I haven't written about this yet, but there's definitely memes floating around that suggests in particular that the men going their own way group, which is a group of, of male separatists, right? They reject women of all, all kinds. They don't have relationships with them. They don't get married. They don't have families. 
is problematic because that's supportive of the idea of white genocide. So when the, the white supremacist groups take that up, they pose it through tropes of, you know, really consistently use tropes about Jewish people and, and the blue pill, because they use pill logics between the two communities, to kind of highlight the idea that male separatism is is another path that leads to the destruction of society because it leads to diminished white birth rates. So those are the kind of incursions we're seeing in visual rhetoric, which are concerning. Ashley, you made reference to the figure of uh, Stefan Molyneux and noted his origins as a men's rights activist of some sort. It was uh, three years ago in 2018 that he toured Australia along with Lauren Southern, who's another figure who's emerged in recent years as a fairly prominent uh, woman within this space. Can you talk about what kind of role figures like Southern play as outspoken women within this domain that's understood and is uh, male-dominated? And can you reflect on, if you have watched it, the recent documentary on uh, Southern and others in which she was among a number to complain about the misogyny that exists within the alt-right? Yes, I've looked at Lauren Southern's case, and, and in fact, one of my first journal publications was actually touches on that moment when Lauren Southern and Tara McCarthy, in particular, another person, come out and, and say, hey, this movement is misogynist. But they would hold the role, like Stefan Molyneux, of being what we would call influencers, right? So they have YouTube, typically video channels, although they've, they've shifted to other channels, but they started originally on YouTube with videos that became very, very popular discussing these ideas. In fact, one of Lauren Southern's, which is very clear, they show it in the in the documentary about her. She utilizes a sort of makeup tutorial format to promote anti-Islamic sentiment as one of her, her ways of getting started. And, and we see her with other figures that, that could be considered influencers in this space as well. And uh, Ali Alexander is one of the people in the documentary that she was circulating with, who was an influencer who claims partial responsibility for the Stop the Steal rally that turned into the Capitol insurrection. So a lot of these people circled each other in space. And, and while they claim to be political activists, that's typically how they front it to kind of get around the idea of, of being extremists. They were able to leverage kind of this growing development in video watching and, and kind of YouTube news gathering and different things to increase their profile, to make money, right? It's a, it, it can be, if you do it very well, it can be lucrative. And some of the ways that you can make it lucrative is by being incredibly shocking, which is one of the ways Southern succeeded in that. But she's not the only woman who does this. So in the paper I was talking about, you know, it's very interesting that these women and, and the women who came out and, and were talking about that were predominantly unmarried women at the time. And there were other female influencers that responded to that. But I, I use them as kind of a, a contextual setting for Another female influencer in that space, in the identitarian space, Lana Lochtef, who runs Red Ice Media with her husband, and she runs the streaming radio channel 314 Radio, who have created these kind of really big influencer platforms. And in, in particular, what I was focused on is in one of her speeches that she gave at a conference they helped fund was about how, you know, white supremacists or how identitarian women should navigate, right, their role as feminine women within the movement, given the kind of dangers posed at the current moment to the white race and to their kind of political persuasions generally. And it's her discussion is very much about like, 
how to navigate between what I would call action and submission. That's a little bit loaded, but, but how to be an ideal feminine woman, but still be active for the movement. So that was a, a pretty interesting kind of narration of when it's okay and how it's okay to step forward and otherwise how you should support things. And she's also said she's experienced um, misogyny within the movement. She, she didn't agree with them on their stance at that that time, as far as I know. Instead, she just kind of said, you just have to keep doing doing this the right way. But she was also married then, and she since has had a, had a child. So I don't know if if being able to kind of project those characteristics of proper womanhood in the context, in the in the way it's narrated, were helping her not experience the same amount of misogyny. I'm I'm not sure. But we do get kind of multiple narratives coming out of it. Although, you know, even though they brought that up as a problem, it didn't prevent either Lauren Southern or Tara McCarthy at that time from continuing with the work they were doing. You've done this research into, you know, mums of the alt-right or alt-mums. Uh, you've also done a bit of research into the role of momfluencers within the QAnon conspiracy. I was wondering if you saw any parallels between the way that uh, mothers uh, fit into both of those areas. So. Yes. Um, and I, and I would say there's, there's a bit of overlap. So one of the things that makes that an important site is because one of the primary roles in certainly kind of women's narration of kind of participation in identitarian and alt-right and far-right groups is their role as mother, as raising the next generation, right, of, of white people. And so that's a, a role that many people in that ideology and around that ideology, many women want to have. And there's been kind of a movement to a more traditionalist framework in that sensibility. They want to be, or they articulate the desire to be wives and mothers and, and do that. So they're part of a larger culture that's online called colloquially the Mamosphere, which is a massive online culture. Uh, Mumsnet in the UK has millions of subs- subscribers. These are not small communities. Instagram, momfluencers, again, the large ones can have millions of followers. The less large ones have hundreds of thousands. The sort of even less large ones have thousands. I mean, there's just just a vast community of, of women online. So being influencers in those communities comes in in many different kinds of flavors, but it's a huge network through which to circulate your ideas and to engage. And one of the ways women more broadly have used that trend is to kind of create their own sort of lifestyle brand. So these grew, grew up together. So you see kind of people like Lauren Southern and others becoming influencers in the same kind of way that moms are in the same kind of time frame in online spaces because the influencer model is a particular model that's broader than just this topic. But then with QAnon, what happens very interestingly, because it kind of brought my dissertation research focused on the broader mom communities back together with this, is you get moms who are interested in things like health and wellness. There's, of course, anti-vaccine networks of mothers already in existence there. There's groups that call themselves MAGA moms, right, who are very conservative and in support of things like the Second Amendment, right? You have all these different kind of interests and influencers in those spaces. And with the, the kind of pandemic, you have a lot more people at home, a lot more people reading the internet, particularly mothers. You have mothers very concerned about what's happening and their children. And QAnon starts to spread around these communities. And it spreads through, like explodes through the hijacking of the Save the Children hashtag, which just rocketed through 
the Mama Sphere communities on multiple platforms and drew people in who may not have any relationship to either one of the more um, deep-seated extremist bents of either QAnon or the alt and far right. So you start to have these narratives circulating through this momfluencer community and those kind of influencers start to take up and share some even some even divest themselves of other brands that they've been paid by to focus on Q and Q merchandise because QAnon isn't just the conspiracy theory like there's a whole series of products clothing books masks you know and and all this ties into the save the children protests anti-masking and lockdown protests there's all these tentacles if you will ways of connecting that Q followers found to embed and circulate the narratives of Q through different communities. And the momfluencer community is just massive. And Save the Children really worked as a way to circulate the ideology through that community. Um, when thinking about figures like um, uh, Lana and Lauren and so on, there seems to be some divergence in the sense that in Australia, Lauren has been adopted by Sky News and regularly presents to a national audience and also a huge uh, global online audience. And part of that, she seems to have been able to secure that access by toning down some of her rhetoric. For example, she's now no longer advancing the uh, Great Replacement thesis. On the other hand, with a figure like Lana, they seem to have been even more marginalised by the major platforms, partly on account of the fact that they're not prepared to renounce some of their core beliefs. So my question is relates to the uh, affordances or possibilities that mainstream media offers to particular figures on the alt-right or women on the alt-right who've been operating in that environment for some years and their ability to, I guess, be incorporated into, be accommodated by more mainstream media companies and platforms. I wonder, in terms of the future, do you think it's possible for women who have been active on the alt-right to pursue, successfully pursue careers in the mainstream? And what does that say about the mainstream's uh, ability to absorb these kinds of elements? And what do you think that means for the future in terms of examining misogyny online? Wow. It's a great question. It's, it's also a lot. So um, my, my understanding from quite a few of the content things that I've seen across a lot of these groups is one of the primary goals, you know, from years and years and years ago was to shift the Overton window of acceptable ideas. And yes, Lauren Southern has renounced certain aspects of, of her prior work and her prior um, kind of the ideas that she shared. I, I am dubious that remains to be seen. And I think has, has more to do with kind of um, suggestions about what's changed in her personal life, but she is still a brand. Um, in a certain sense, and a brand that can tap into kind of ongoing debates over things, certainly in the US, one of them would be free speech, one of them would be claims of bias, news bias. I, it, it seems to me like I haven't seen her her sky cast, but it seems like maybe she's inhabiting more of a kind, kind of Tommy Laren space. So there's plenty of, of people in that that space, women already. Um, but it, it does suggest to me that the Overton window has shifted enough that that's acceptable. I don't know that there's going to be a mass exodus from sort of um, the deep extremist influencer model into the mainstream. I, I would be interested to see if anyone else tries to make that shift. Lana Lochtef, like they have her and, and her husband, Red Ice is a fairly large, as, as it goes in that environment, kind of media 
framework. So I, I, I don't, I think it's not the same kind of necessity to find work as maybe Lauren Southern experienced after she um, had to step back from what she was doing in the alt-right based on her kind of life circumstances, or at least that's how she narrates what happened. Because yeah, I, I don't know her, so I don't know specifically. But it, it is concerning because we do know that w- women and women's narratives are often ways that kind of more extreme ideas and rhetoric can be normalized and softened for more uh, mainstream consumption, right? This is true, like in particular of QAnon, like there's, I think there's an article in the Atlantic and I think uh, a few other researchers talk about pastel QAnon. So in particular on Instagram, this kind of softening of imagery and things that's very visible in that case, but it does help circulate content that might not normally circulate if it was being very explicitly and, and kind of brutally shared in the ways that it can sometimes be through, through male influencers. They tend to have a more direct approach. So that, that, that is a slightly concerning to me, but at the same time, I haven't heard any of her, her content. So I'm not sure how she's using that platform. I, w- I would be interested to find out. That's something I may have to have to now look at. Thank you for sending me down a new rabbit hole. <laughs> you are listening to Yeah Na Passaran on 3CR, 855 AM, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Dr. Ashley Mateus about the far right, women and memes. Another area you've written about is uh, comparing identitarian and jihadi discourses on women. Could you run us through how uh, the identitarians and the jihadis shape up on this? So studying kind of Salafi jihadism is not my specialty area. So that was a collaborative project I did with Dr. Charlie Winter, who's at the uh, International Center for the Study of Radicalization at King's College, London. And he had uh, been doing some work with a faculty member that I also do work with who specializes in the visual propaganda of um, jihadist groups. And we had met at that point and I, I happened to send him the paper I had done on women's recruiting narratives for the alt- alt-right and far-right online. And he read it and, and he came back to me and he said, you know, I translated a document a few years back and and it's got some similar features, I think. How would you feel about maybe working on this together and see if, if anything comes out of it? And I said, sure. He's, he's a very uh, nice colleague to work with. And so we just started comparing kind of the narratives that I had been seeing or that I had defined in the Shield Maidens of Whiteness paper to the document he had translated, which is called the, the CONSA uh, Manifesto. And it was a document put out by sort of the Women's Brigade, the CONSA Brigade of ISIS in 2015. And so we just, we know that like we specifically stayed in that report, like we're not looking at the cultural context. We're looking at the structure of the arguments that are being made because there's a lot of difference in the cultural context, but we were looking at the structure of the arguments and the structures I had used for, or not used for, but uncovered in the narrative that I had read in identitarianism matched pretty well with the, the structure that was used, the types of arguments being used in the, in the CONSA document. So our, report lays out how they overlap, but the idea of what I call alt-maternalism, because it's alt-right related, that same type of maternalist argument exists in the jihadist content text in this document, right? It's got a different cultural framing, but it's still an argument about maternalism as a role and maternalism as a special site, right? A special duty, an elevated duty for women. They both share a structural element of, of claiming that 
women, if they're going to be active participants, or if they're going to kind of do more than have a supporting feminine role, that can happen in certain specific contexts, but they use, in order to kind of highlight how those contexts are specific, they use figures, what I would call women of myth and legend, right? So in the identitarian case, Lochtef refers to Valkyries, shield maidens, these like kind of mythic female figures. And then in the Kansa document, they refer to Islamic women of myth and legend as a kind of way to say, there is a model for us to do this, but it's, it's very specific cases in which we might take on a leadership role because it's really men who are supposed to be leaders. And then the last kind of big structural argument that's very similar is the idea that men are the, in, in each context, are the kind of promoters of, builders of, and givers of civilization, of the right kind of civilization to the women of their group, right? So in the identitarian case, I refer to like civilization, Western civilization is the ultimate romantic gesture is the way Lochtef kind of described it. So they have these big kind of structural similarities in how they frame the argument and how they're making the argument, even though the cultural context is different. And that's really kind of what we were looking at to, to give an empirical framework for trying to understand or maybe work toward the idea of, of thinking about extremism at, at a structural level and what similarities might exist, like in ways that it's they produce arguments and produce persuasive material. In responding to this online culture of uh, misogyny, have you had an opportunity to examine uh, specifically feminist responses and what opportunities, what possibilities do you think there are for feminists to intervene in these spaces regarding discussions of racialized and gendered orders? So, uh, of course, you, you can see some of that commentary when you're looking at boards online and there's there is very open critique of quite a few of, of the groups, both in kind of academic world and in a more popular context. And I, I think that is an important kind of critique. It's also a broader critique in some ways, right? Because in particular, the the kind of manosphere groups were not unconnected to manosphere groups and, and kind of alt-right groups leveraged a lot of what came out of Gamergate, which is a space that feminists were really connected to pushing back against and still are. So you see some of that overlap. I think one of the biggest contexts is that, that I've seen feminists work on this is that social networking sites and the internet need to be spaces where everyone is able to inhabit and particularly to do their work. So as far back as 2014, I think uh, a woman named Amanda Hess, who's a kind of news reporter and a writer, wrote a piece for the Pacific Standard titled The Next Civil Rights Issue. And that was about online harassment, particularly of women and feminist authors, right? And so in the American context, right, being pushed out of being able to do your job because of your gender is is problematic uh, legally. So that kind of discussion has been ongoing. There's certainly also people who might identify, I don't know if they identify as male feminists who do work like that online. So there's a, a few groups, I, I don't want to, I don't have, I haven't talked to any of them to have permission to name them, but there's a few groups that do that. And in the research community, I work with a group called the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism. And we're a bunch of different scholars that have come together to talk to to the news about kind of male supremacism in both the manosphere and extremist kind of communities. And we have a lot of different scholars who do a lot of different work. And a lot of us identify as feminists and use use that kind of theory to kind of think about what's happening and 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 call attention to what's happening. So that's had some some good success. Yeah, there's a lot of work for feminist people and people 
I'm worried about gender equality to do in those in, in kind of particularly online space, while at the same time recognizing that it can be incredibly dangerous work to do because you know um, network harassment is is a very real and sometimes very dangerous thing, and that happens quite a lot even when you're not actively pushing against those groups. So it's it's it can be tendentious, but just having some of those groups now recognized as certainly kind of masculinist extremists or male supremacist groups is, is helpful in keeping to kind of work forward on that is important work. As well as the memification of far-right mass killers, you've also written a bit about the gamification of this. Could you explain what that means and what you've seen develop? Gamification, let me kind of give a broad, gamification is the idea of using kind of gaming reference and non-game context. The sort of original literatures on this actually come from work in kind of marketing and advertising as well as education. So it starts out as kind of thinking about ways to engage people in learning or in consumer behaviors or other types of behaviors that you you would like them to have. In the last 18 months, it's become a more used term in the world of online extremism, in particular because we know, uh, right, video gamers and things like we know people tend to recruit or, or have recruited from things like Discord gaming channels. And we can see in the, the video propaganda, certainly on the, the alt-right and in the jihadist context, other parts of my research team work on that context, that propagandists are incorporating at least the motifs, images, and aspects of games. Um, and in fact, one of the big articles on ISIS and gaming, ISIS's use of Call of Duty, is about how the use of the game itself, because in gaming context, people work across language barriers, that, that that may be a way that ISIS was trying to recruit outside of linguistic and cultural barriers because people could identify with the game um, and that game motif that they were using. So that's kind of gaming started to be a thing and people started looking at it more. And then, then Christchurch happened. And if we weren't talking about gamification before Christchurch, we all had to start talking about it to a certain extent afterwards because the live streaming of Christchurch is in effect a form of gamification. It's it's videoed as if it's a first person shooter video game. And it's understood that way by gamers online and some of the research I've done, like um, just based on the way that it's been reproduced by other people online who are gamers. So what I was trying to look at was like, okay, gamification we've talked about it as like reward systems or point systems in video games. We've talked about it in a bunch of ways, but I went back to the education and marketing literature to try and understand things I was seeing, like people making memes using parts of the live stream of Christchurch, right? So trying to make the funniest version of live mass murder is, is a strange concept. You've got a reward thing there with the likes, but you've also got someone spending a lot of time to do that. So what might motivate them to do something like that beyond like, it seemed to me that it was more than just people liking what you did. And then we also see there are people who have rebuilt the entire Christchurch attack, all 45 minutes of it in gaming environments. There are people who are building avatars in VR chats. um, And this is work Ashton Kingdon, who was on your program not too long ago is doing where they're building avatars of like Hitler so they can sit down and have coffee with Hitler. It's, you know, stuff. More, I know, more things are going on there. And so I employed this kind of concept from the literature called meaningful gamification. And the difference here is, is the idea of basic gamification using reward systems, leaderboards, things like that in propaganda creates initial, right, motivation, right, to play the game to win, whatever. 
but this kind of deeper interactive creation actually indicates what is called meaningful gamification or an intrinsic motivation to participate. So there's something deeper there that is potentially much more problematic if people are spending hours and hours of time reproducing and circulating, right, this this violent content. It also helps people evade bans on content because if you've reproduced it, it's now no longer the same file, right? So the kind of algorithmic sweeps to take down parts of the, you know, and anytime the Christchurch live stream comes up, it's supposed to come down off all the platforms. This gets around that to a little bit. So there's also the, the added benefit of gaming the system, gaming the taboos, right? Disrupting the lives of, of normies or other people who might come into contact with it. So yeah, there was a lot going on there. And it just really seemed to me when I, when I got a comp, I found a compilation video of like eight different versions of the Christchurch live stream, which was basically these different memeified versions. And I just, I had to figure out what that was. And it just seems to me that it's a much more intense version of gamification than we had been seeing or talking about up, up to that point. I suppose when I think about gamification of these things, I, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the 4chan threads in response to these things where they talk about the high scores and mm-hmm. going for the high score. Kill counts. Yes, that that's a big one. And they do meme that out. Like I've got pictures of essentially visual kinds of leaderboards of different mass attackers with their kill counts attached to them and their country flags because, you know, um, gold medals. So yeah, that's definitely a part of gamification. That would be a, an, an example of, of kind of the leaderboard based gamification that is normally talked about. And so I was just wanting to add to that conversation, this other practice I was seeing that seemed a bit more involved and, and see if, if that's the way people are moving. If there's an interest in that, it's something we need to follow. Um, as people interested in ideas of radicalization, because that that type of engagement should be of concern. I suppose in doing this sort of research, you're often exposed to a lot of incredibly awful material. Uh, how do you navigate that? Um, yes, that is one of the big things that has also been a, a topic in the, in the field more recently in terms of kind of researcher safety. One aspect of researcher safety is is dealing with very damaging material. And you know, there are some things, different things bother people in, in different ways, but you have to set, what I found early on is that I had to set limits. I don't ever research for more than two or three days in a row looking at this kind of content, reading this kind of content. I always have to take breaks from it. Like you have to set structure, whatever that structure needs to be for you. And it's really important to teach students working on this. Like it's very easy to go down rabbit holes. It's very easy to kind of be so interested in something or, or, kind of things keep grabbing your attention because it's it's material designed to do that um, but you have to stop and you have to take breaks and and if for I know for other people I know it's playing video games I know for some people it's it's spending time with their families for some people it's like cat and puppy videos which I totally support I like DIY kind of craft videos things like that um, but you have to find a thing that that helps you come back to kind of normal headspace and normal emotive space and then be in that for about an equal amount of time um, before you go back to to the heavy content. At least that's how I've found a way of dealing with it. But there are, are big differences between the different types of extremism. Like it's it's very interesting to me that people who, who work a lot with jihadist extremism often don't understand how I can stand to look at the content I look at while I feel the same way about their content. So there are definitely, you know, some things bother some people more than other things um, because they're, they're, they're both can be very awful, but in slightly different ways, I, I, I guess. And I, I definitely noticed that like when I had been studying kind of 
the in the manosphere when I've been focused on kind of men's texts and and that imagery, I had one kind of reaction to it, and then I was studying you know the women of the alt right and their narratives. That didn't bother me. It bothered me, but not in the same way. So when I then went back to looking at kind of the more masculinity based stuff, I really like felt the effect of it more than I had the first time around studying it. So, you know, you also have to develop new strategies over time um, and, and that are adaptive to where you are at as a researcher and as a person. Ashley, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people would like to follow you on Twitter, you are at... A-A-M-A-T-T-H-E-I-S. So my, my first and middle initial and my last name. And you also have just a lot of work. Uh all over the place, including at the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. Yeah, so I try to do public-facing work that's openly accessible for people. So, yep, if you Google my name, it it will come up. (laughs) Um, Well, that's all we've got time for, Andy. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. Kafiyas are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafiyas, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafiyah to an array of modern designs, all scarves are just $30 each. Explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kufias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter.